to Nehemiah, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 1, uh, going up to chapter 2, verse 8. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile was in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ears be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you, day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We've acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples, but if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though your, outca your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now, I was cut the earth of the king. In the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing as you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of, of the heart. And I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, the, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given the time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber and make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Let's pray that prayer we pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. The Lord, our rock, and our redeemer. It's nice to be back up here. <laughs> to be honest, it was also really nice to have a couple weeks free from sermon writing. Thanks again to Dominic and Alistair and Pastor Julian for helping out. This ends up being a good time to catch up on lots of clerical work. Kingdom ministry apparently sometimes looks like preparing documents for presbytery and things like that. So um, God has been really good also in these last two weeks. Some of us were blessed to go to the QCRT last weekend. And the theme was revival. 
And they talked about personal revival. We talked about church revival. It was all very fitting for what we've been talking about here. The weekend before that, our Presbyterian Hall Missions Conference down in Drescher, which was also very encouraging. We talked about evangelism and outreach. And I attended a seminar uh, where we were talking about reaching immigrant communities, particularly the Portuguese and Spanish-speaking communities. So that was also very fitting. And tell me God is not sovereign here, because I have heard not one, but two sermons on Nehemiah 1 in the last two weeks. Uh, Pastor Julene last Sunday, but uh, Greg Hills from MTW at the missions conference preached on it uh, the previous week, so they were both excellent. And honestly, more could be said about that chapter. I, I, I feel like I can pick it apart and could be there forever. I won't do that to you. Um, but God's word is like that. So I wanted to start looking at chapter 2 today, but I wanted to revisit a couple of themes from chapter 1 if they tie in here to chapter 2. Um, by way of how many of you have ever seen the Lego movie? It's a favorite in my house. Oh, oh man, you guys got to fix that. It's really funny. An instant classic in my mind. It even has some good gospel themes. I know we have to dig for them sometimes in the, in the movies we like, but it, it's pretty good in there. It, it's about a, a common everyman Lego guy named Emmett Perkowski, and he is without a doubt the most vanilla, milk toast, pathetic person in the world. Uh, his own co-workers can barely remember him because he's just that unremarkable. Uh, and as one of them says, he's just not that special. <laughs> but it's a story of how he comes to end up fulfilling a prophecy, not to give you too many spoilers, a prophecy about a mysterious person known as The Special. And the one wizard guy, voiced by Morgan Freeman, of course, tells him, uh, you are the most talented, most interesting, and most extraordinary person in the universe. And you are capable of amazing things because you are the special. And he's got like, this blank, dopey look on his face, you know. And, and part of being the special for Emmett, it means that you finally become one of the master builders, which is like a special class of heroes who make amazing Lego creations from, you know, just out of nowhere, out, out of whole cloth, you know. And the special is going to be the greatest of them all. And I thought to myself, that's not entirely dissimilar from what's about to happen to Nehemiah. I don't think he was as pathetic as... Emmett, but his role in the story is almost as unlikely. He, he does not look like a great leader, and he certainly doesn't look like a great architect. He's not that special. But by God's grace, he is destined to become a master builder. Uh, Pastor Julian kicked us off with this theme of renovation and rebuilding as a, as a heart issue we were talking about last week, right? Uh, and this revival in this book is slightly different. Uh, Ezra's revival is sort of explicitly religious, right? It revolved around the temple. This book is about building the wall. But it's more than that, isn't it? That we know that the temple was already back up and running at this point. But, but Nehemiah hears from his brother that the condition of the city itself is, is pretty sad. Uh, not only is the wall still broken, but he says that the people are. In verse 3 of chapter 1, he says that they're in great trouble and shame. And so the wall itself becomes sort of a symbol for the condition of the nation, the people. Because, you know, walls are not just a pile of bricks. They, they mean something. They mean protection and sanctuary and safety. And, and I was so glad, as Julian pointed this out, that they also mean hospitality. You cannot show proper hospitality if things are not secure. If you don't have four walls of your own, there's nowhere to host people, right? And hospitality means making people feel welcome and safe and at home, and it's hard to do that without walls. 
Uh, Pastor John also observed rebuilding as a spiritual issue, a hard issue, he, that it doesn't start with programs and policies and plans. It starts with the heart. God needed to stir up a heart for change, and he starts with Nehemiah. He, he gives the gift of a broken heart to Nehemiah, a heart that is troubled by the condition of God's people. And what breaks the heart of Nehemiah is not just again, the addition of the walls, but again, the heart, which is it's, it's full of sin. His prayer is a prayer of repentance for the nation, for his father's house, even for himself. So Nehemiah's revival starts with himself. He owns the fact that sin, including his own, is what caused this trouble and shame. And we're told that he wept for days over this. Greg Hills mentioned in his sermon on this, he asked, in the sermon, uh, whether any of us have ever wept like that for literal days on end. And I'm reflecting on that question, like I can think of like maybe three occasions where you know, my sorrow has lasted that long in that way, like when I lost my dad, when my first girlfriend, if you could call it that, uh, broke up with me after two weeks of passing notes in class. I wept for many days. I was a very pathetic teenager. Uh, ministry has led me down that path for a time or two, uh, but we typically weep like that over a sense of loss, uh, because that kind of pain doesn't go away. Something close, something near and dear to us is lost. And what's remarkable, though, about that is that Nehemiah is weeping like this and showing this kind of emotion over something that's very far away. <coughs> and we're told from the start that he's living in Susa, in the capital of the Persian Empire, right? This is the, the coolest, most modern city of his day. It would have tremendous art, probably a great restaurant scene, hipster bars on every corner, you know. Nehemiah lives where all the cool people are, but he weeps for what's happening in Jerusalem. God has given him a heart that breaks for what sin has done to his people. That's where the rebuilding starts. And so Nehemiah prays. He prays a good, reformed prayer. It kind of follows the adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication model. His prayer is beautiful, and it shows a proper appreciation for who God is. And connected to that, Nehemiah knows who we are, who he is, who we are as God's people. And he knows that all of this suffering and trouble and shame is self-inflicted. Nehemiah's heart is troubled, not because of what God has done, but how far God's people have allowed themselves to slide into disgrace. And there's something funny about chapter 1. You see, this entire book is written in the first person, unlike Ezra, which kind of changed partway through. Uh, so from the start, Nehemiah is our narrator. And the whole of chapter 1 is dedicated to this guy, Nehemiah's response to this news uh, out of Jerusalem, how he felt about it, and how God has apparently laid it on his heart, and it tells us what he prayed, and all of this, right? Well, the reason I say it's funny is that for nearly the full 11 verses, we don't know who Nehemiah is. Verse 1 gives us his father's name, but that doesn't shed a whole lot of light, right? Uh, we read almost the whole chapter of this very emotional, very moving prayer, and we still don't know who we're listening to. Like, why does he care? Who is this guy? What's he going to do about it, right? Is he, is he a priest, like Ezra? Is he an architect, a soldier? Like, why is he so passionate about this thing? And it's not until this very last sentence that we finally get an answer to that question at the end there. Now, I was cupbearer to the king. By the way, he says. 
I was cupbearer. I was the royal bartender, as Phil said last week. Phil, that was not too far off the mark. I think that was good. I was taking notes. <laughs> Nehemiah is the guy who keeps the royal goblet full. That's not where you would expect the revival to start. I think we tend to read this like so many things. We read it a little bit backwards because you know, we already know that Nehemiah is going to lead this, this revival and rebuilding. And so we kind of think of his status as the cupbearer as being like, well, that was critical, right? Uh, that must have been like, of course, naturally, he's a natural fit. Like, think about how silly it would be. <laughs> how silly it would sound if you didn't know the ending, right? Like, in what world is Nehemiah, the royal bartender, the ideal candidate to lead this thing? I don't get me wrong, bartending teaches you a lot, but it's not going to teach you masonry, right? Or administration and leadership skills. And yet that's the heart that God chooses to stir. Nehemiah, the cupbearer. But he's God's cupbearer, God's bartender above all. He's not chosen for his political connections, although God is going to use those. He is chosen because he has a heart for God's people. His heart breaks for the same things that break God's heart. His heart breaks for the shame and the disgrace that sin has created. And also because Nehemiah doesn't trust his connections, he trusts God. Because another remarkable thing about chapter 1 is what you can see again in retrospect, you know, not knowing who he is and what his station is. Like, Nehemiah knows the king of Persia. He sees him on a daily basis. But he doesn't start by going to the king. He starts with prayer. He doesn't start by asking the king for help. He asks God for help. He has access to the king of Persia, the mightiest nation on earth. But more importantly, he has access to the king of heaven. And he knows who holds really the power in this situation. Revival does not begin with programs and plans and policies. It doesn't start with a letter to your congressman or a fundraising campaign. It begins on your knees before the God who revives hearts. So Nehemiah does not start by asking the king for help. He talks to God first. And maybe that sounds foreign to our ears. I mean, it seems sensible. We're in church. We're supposed to be, you know, the answer is always God, Jesus, right? Um, but I think to myself, like, when I'm in trouble and I see these things that worry me and upset me, is God my first resort all the time, or do I look for the nearest earthly help to address the situation? If we hear about some grievous wrong, something shameful, something that isn't right, should not be, our first inclination is often to do something about it, or make someone else do something about it. And We'll donate money, share stories on social media, urge people to vote, call our elected officials. You know, all of this is a form of turning to men to solve our problems. And I bet if you knew the president personally, that might occur to you pretty early on, but I'm going to think of him first. Let me go talk to that guy. You know, what else is the point of having such a connection? But Nehemiah knows that his primary identity is that he serves God before the king. He is God's bartender above all. Just as I am God's minister, you may be God's carpenter, God's plumber, God's teacher, God's waitress, regardless of your job, you belong to him first and foremost. 
And you serve him in your workplace, as Paul says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men. So Nehemiah knows who he is, and he knows who God's people are. He says in his prayer in verse 10 that you know he refers to them as your servants, your people. Profound words coming from a personal servant of the king of Persia, but he is primarily a servant of God. And most importantly, Nehemiah knows who God is. In that same verse, he reminds God of who he is. He says that you're the one who redeems us. And that's the hope in the story. That's what really matters. It's about God's relationship with his redeemed people. If they are God's people, surely he's not going to leave them in disgrace. Nehemiah believes that. And so he approaches the heavenly throne first, not as the cupbearer, but as one of God's redeemed people who has access to the Creator. That's the connection that matters. But then we get to the actual confrontation with the king in chapter 2. What does it say here? In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year, King Artaxerxes, when the wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. This is the moment that Nehemiah has prayed for. He specifically asked in his prayer that God would give him help in speaking to the king. As he said, he said, grant me mercy in the sight of this man. God is the source of the mercy, but the instrument of mercy is going to be the king. And, and, and that's when he dropped that one line, right? Like, well, I was the cupbearer. And as Pastor John said last week, this is not the worst job in the world. It's a government job. Good benefits. He has a bedroom and a palace, right? But it's not a high-ranking job. His name would not be known in public. So it was a job for somebody trustworthy, but not somebody noteworthy, if that makes sense. It's a job that calls for quiet faithfulness, not grand heroics. There's a reason why none of you, as I'm guessing here, none of you can name the current White House chef, right? Of course not. It's a quiet, thankless job, and he or she will never make the news if they're doing the job right, you know? But you better believe that whoever that is has some serious security clearances, right? So yes, they're, they're trusted, but it's not an influential job. Nehemiah's job is to be the best bartender he can be. That means fixing drinks for the king and keeping him alive in the process. And it's not just a job for wine any more than a bartender only pours wine, right? If that was his only job, I mean, anybody could do that. But along with not letting any poison through, his job is to keep the king's drinks interesting, varied, maybe even make some recommendations, right? And again, not spectacular pay, maybe, but you live in the palace, you would be close to the king physically, if not super personally, but maybe a little bit personally. When you think about it, right? Uh, Cupbearers, they have the chance because, I mean, when, when does the king not want wine before him, right? I mean, I don't know if I'm king. I kind of expect that to be full at all times. Um, I would think he's there often. And so he has the chance to have friendly chats with the king, you would think. He, it's not like he's a soldier or a guard where you need to stand at attention the whole time, like, you know, the, the, the royal guys in London, you know, where you're not allowed to laugh and people poke me with them and that kind of thing. But, but if you're the royal bartender, you'd think you might be able to have a conversation with the king, casually, right? Because you've got to figure, even a king has physical needs. Someone has to meet those. And so some people have to be close to him. So you're like, okay, he's going to have a barber, he's going to have a cook, he's going to have a wife, he's going to have a bartender. Uh, these people will end up being confidants of a sort, people he'll talk to, where he lets his hair down a little bit. Speaking of hair, like now I don't go to the barber much. My wife is a lot cheaper and she does a better job than most of them, but when you do go to the barber, what do you do? 
supposed to do. You're stuck in this chair under a tarp and you have to sit still. So you talk about stuff. Usually meaningless stuff. Stuff to pass the time. Weather, politics, sports. Not too much politics. You know, get in trouble. After all, this guy pulled a razor blade, right? My cousin is a hairdresser. She's a great talker. You know? But the whole idea is it's meant to set you at ease and to make you comfortable. Maybe make you laugh, you know? You don't bring up controversial topics if you can help it. And deli work, when I did deli work, it could be like that. Some customers apparently had no one else in the world to talk to. And so they would come to the market just to vent and complain and gossip. It's the same in all markets, isn't it, Chris? Yes. There were days in the deli when I felt like I was a professional counselor. I would just stand there and listen. And it's like, you're not really here for bacon, are you? <laughs> Bartending is the same thing. Most of the job is making small talk. How long does it take to pour a glass? You're here to make the person feel comfortable and at ease and maybe give a listening ear. And I imagine that's what Nehemiah often did. But the key to such a job is to make the small talk center on the client, in this case, the king. If a customer walks into a bar, you're not there to listen to the bartender. You know, it's like, I'm here for a drink, and maybe someone will listen to me. Your job as the bartender is to listen and maybe get me to talk or whatever, right? And I think this is far more true if you're the king's bartender. It's not the bartender's place to tell the king about himself and how he's feeling today. Who cares? Your job is to humor the king, get him laughing and talking about himself. So again, I think Nehemiah is a very strange choice to lead this big revival here. It's like God is choosing the gardener, or his dentist, or his physical therapist, or something. But God loves plucking obscure people in obscure places and positions to do mighty kingdom deeds. There's a reason why Jesus hung out with fishermen and tax collectors. So somehow, Nehemiah, between telling jokes and pouring drinks, he wants to bring up this topic of <laughs> Jerusalem. And that's an awkward thing to bring up, I'm sure. It doesn't really fit in with the usual small talk, does it? And it doesn't keep everybody laughing, which is your job. Your job is to keep the king and everyone else married, high spirits. But if you've ever tried planning for an awkward, difficult conversation, you know what this is like, what it's like to sit up all night the night before, agonizing over just the right words you're going to use in this difficult conversation. How am I going to make it sound casual and natural when I bring this thing up? And of course it never works, does it? The more prepared you do, the more awkward it tends to be. So no wonder Nehemiah prayed for help. And so he prays, and the next day he walks in to do his usual day job, and I bet his goal is to keep things light, Keep things natural. Bartender's not supposed to be sad. My job is to keep the king married. And then this happens. The king said to me, Why is your face sad? Seeing you are not sick. This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. How many of you can attest that sometimes God brings the awkward conversation to you rather than waiting for you to get to it? Here's Nehemiah struggling to say what's on his mind, probably looking for just the right moment. 
but apparently oblivious to the fact that he's wearing his heart on his sleeve, as they say. I can relate. People can always tell when I'm in a bad mood without a word. I like to think that's my spiritual gift, is communicating without words. Nehemiah is supposed to be happy and keep his misery to himself. The tears of a clown are for when no one's around, Smokey Robinson. But Nehemiah's heart is so broken that he can't hide it, and so the king breaks the ice for him. Like, Nehemiah, why the long face? Why so long? You don't look sick. What the heck is wrong with you? What's eating you? And suddenly Nehemiah has this opening. I don't think he was quite ready for, so he just kind of spills his guts in verse 3. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Okay, then. That's a mouthful. If you've ever asked somebody what's wrong, and then you realize, like, oh, I just opened a can of worms, you know? I've been married long enough to know. Any of us know that. It can happen with your kids, too. You ask that question, you need to brace yourself. And oftentimes, the first time you get it, oh, nothing, it's fine. I usually have to ask two or three times before she dumps. But the king asks his bartender once, hey, what's bothering you? And he just blurts out this emotional complaint. Careful to preface it with the proper kingly address. So live forever, O king, but after that, it's like pure emoting, Nehemiah does, right? And I bet the king was taken by surprise, like we often are when somebody suddenly dumps a bunch of emotion on us, right? Like, I don't think this was the beautiful speech Nehemiah was rehearsing the night before, is my point. And yet God uses it. The, the king is favorably disposed to Nehemiah. He likes his bartender. And rather than ask what the heck Nehemiah is talking about, he asks a very practical question in the beginning of verse 4. What does he say? The king said to me, what are you requesting? Nehemiah, what do you want me to do? What are you asking? What do you want? You're clearly upset. What can I do? I find that fascinating because it's a great question. I actually feel like Artaxerxes is almost speaking in God's voice here. How many of us have ever prayed to God and brought our complaint before him? But if God were to suddenly like rip open the clouds and say out loud, what do you want? You find yourself stammering. Many of us would be dumbstruck. I don't even think we know what we want half the time. It's much easier to articulate what we don't want. I don't know about you, but I find complaining to be the easiest way to handle my problems. <clears throat> it is much easier than fixing things. I'll give you a very practical example. I, I spent Friday night complaining to my wife about our water heater. Why? Because it has a malfunction. It likes to turn off in the middle of showers. And it's one of those tankless models, so the cold water hits you kind of like right away. And then you have to scream to the person, whoever's nearest to the bathroom, to please go down and restart the water heater. This has been going on for like two years, almost daily. We could pay to get it fixed, I guess. It would be expensive. But it's a lot easier to complain about it, isn't it? So I've been doing that for two years. Complaining is cathartic. 
We're all pretty good at it. I'm not going to point fingers, but I've heard it from most of you at one time or another. And some of my best and closest friendships and relationships are premised on getting together to complain about things. That's not strictly true. It feels like it sometimes, anyway. And, of course, some problems are far more complex than a broken water heater because they involve people who are much more frustrating than technology, as it turns out. But if someone asks me straight up in any of those situations, what do you want? I would find myself suddenly tongue-tied, because oftentimes I haven't actually thought that far. I kind of just want it to go away. I don't know how. What am I asking for anyway? And maybe Nehemiah felt the same way, because look what he does there in the second hand. You know, the king says to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. When you can't figure your own head out, the best thing to do is ask God, because sometimes we need to ask God what we want. And really, to ask Him what we should want. Because we don't always know. We can't untangle our own thoughts and emotions. But thankfully, God answers those kinds of prayers, even on the spur of the moment like this. He'll tell you what you want. And he'll tell you what to say. Like Jesus said in Luke 12, the Holy Spirit would give us words when we needed them. That's what it does for Nehemiah here. In verse 5, And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. Well, that's quite a request. I'd like to abandon my post and go to Jerusalem. Why? Because a bunch of my dead relatives are buried there, and it's falling apart, and um, I'm going to go rebuild it real quick. Yeah. You'd like a temporary leave of absence to go build a city. So King Artaxerxes asks the obvious question, how long is that supposed to take? The king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? Now for the record, I like how it mentions that the queen is sitting there too, so that you can picture the two of them looking at each other like, is this guy for real? It raises the stakes, because it's one thing to say something embarrassing in front of somebody, it's quite another when the wife is sitting there too, right? Like, I don't expect my bartender to interrupt my date like that. And I'll be honest, this is, again, it's not been the most impressive sales pitch. Nehemiah, I mean, it, it could almost come across as unhinged emotionally. This request is ridiculous. And how can Nehemiah even answer the king's question with any certainty? How can a cupbearer, a bartender, possibly give an estimate for how long it's going to take to rebuild a city wall? And yet, look what God does in the heart of the king. So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. So Nehemiah has his leave of absence approved. Apparently he made up some kind of number, like, I'll be back in May-ish. And the king graciously says, okay. Seems like a fool's errand, but knock yourself out. Very gracious of the king, part for the trusted servant. Good employees are hard to come by. But with God's guidance and in response to that whispered prayer, in verse 4, Nehemiah becomes even more bold, and he adds a further request. He says, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to the governors of the province beyond the 
passed through until I come to Huna. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. So Nehemiah doesn't just put in for some time off. He wants a letter of safe conduct because no one in Judea is expecting him. Why should they? They're not looking for help. They may not even think there's a problem. So he wants the king to basically announce his coming. He asks for access to lumber. You may remember that back in the beginning of Ezra, access to lumber was a big issue. They had to buy their own. But Nehemiah has the audacity to ask for royal lumber for the city gates. And also for his own house. That's interesting, too, because the king's main initial question was, when will you be back? And now Nehemiah is talking about investing in real estate over there. And I begin to think he intends to stay. I wonder how the king interpreted it. But regardless, whatever he thought of it, he gives his blessing. The king gives Nehemiah exactly what he asks for in every particular. Why? Because of God's good hand. You may recognize those words that are so often repeated in the book of Ezra. God's good hand is on this project. And that is how revival always works. It's a divine thing. It's not the product of programs or human planning. It's not credited to the king. The king is the instrument, not the source. It's not even credited to Nehemiah. He's a bartender. He doesn't know how to build walls. And besides that, his presentation was awful. If the king hadn't asked, he'd still be standing there looking sad. But it doesn't matter. Because revival begins and ends with God. He gives Nehemiah a broken heart for these people. He gives Nehemiah the words. He softens the heart of the king and opens his purse. It's all God from start to finish. So we're going to keep talking about revival and reformation, rebuilding and restoration. That's what Ezra was about. That's what Nehemiah is about. And frankly, that's what the Bible is about. God reviving his people. The gospel is the story of how God restored his people by sending Jesus Christ. Putting us back into a right relationship with himself by the blood of his son. The Bible is a book of revival. And I've said it before, but our church... Lehigh Valley Press needs revival because the city needs the church to be the church. They need Jesus. They need restoration. We are surrounded by some 400,000 people in this valley, most of whom do not know Christ, nor do they know where to look to learn more about him. They are lost. They are in trouble and in shame. And we have the answers they're looking for. But we need to reach them, and we will not if we're not alive with the gospel. So yes, our church needs revival. But as Pastor Jolene pointed out last week, that starts with individual hearts. Revival doesn't start on the institutional level. I can't make it happen. Your session can't make it happen. It starts with individuals as the Holy Spirit convicts and breaks hearts, and then restores them and sets them ablaze with gospel passion. So the church needs revival, and we individually need revival. 
But what I want you to see and be encouraged by, perhaps most today, is that revival is not for specialists. This is not a how-to manual for experts. Unless you think I'm calling for the impossible. God is about to turn a bartender into a master builder, right? That does not happen without divine intervention. But there is hope for us. There is hope for revival because God is the source, not you. God uses people of all backgrounds in every field, even bartenders, even people who can't get their words out. The only prerequisite is a heart that is broken for the lost, and that's a gift from him. And he values that because it's a reflection of Jesus' heart himself. In Matthew 9, I thought of this passage we, we read about when, when it says, when, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. I thought of that because I thought Nehemiah had a heart like that. A heart that was broken for the lost. That was his only qualification going into this thing. God had given Nehemiah a Christ-like heart for the lost. And if God has given you a heart like that, a heart that is broken for the lost, for those who are in shame and in trouble, then you have a heart that is very much in sync with your Lord. If the Holy Spirit has set your heart ablaze with a passion to reach people with the gospel, and it doesn't matter who you are or what you do, that's how revival starts. Revival is his work. It's his idea. It's not about you and your connections or your skill set. He will open doors. He will give you words. And he will provide you with everything you need because it is his good pleasure to restore his people and because his good hand is on us. So let's pray that he would send the laborers out into the harvest and let's pray that we would be along with him. Amen? Gracious God and Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the story of Nehemiah, Lord, that you raise up men in unlikely situations. Men who are not obviously equipped for what you're calling them to do. Women who are not obviously equipped to do what you call them to do. But you equip the ones that you call. Lord, you did that with Nehemiah. You gave him the stumbling words. You were at work in the heart of the king and made him favorably disposed, Lord. Your good hand was on this project. So how could it go wrong? Lord, we ask that your hand would be on this church. Lord, as we think about reaching this city, Proclaiming your gospel. That Christ's name will be lifted up in this city. Lord, make us a part of it. Be at work in our hearts as individuals, Lord, and us as a church. Make us fit for service, Lord. Not because of who we are, our connections, and our skills, Lord, but because you have called us to do it. So we ask that you. 
Augustus in Christ's name. Amen. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please stand and join me in singing the doxology.